Hello and welcome to What Is, a podcast where we discuss interesting tech. I'm Paul and today I'm joined by Mark, who over the past four or five years has been working with blockchain uh, both professionally and it's also become a passion of yours in your spare time, hasn't it? So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about um, what blockchain is and how you got involved with it? Sure. So blockchain is can quickly be defined as a ledger that contains transactions and each new item that's added to the ledger has to be approved by the network. So everybody has a copy of the ledger and to update it, uh, it has to be by the protocol of the network. Um, a good example is Bitcoin, for example, which is a really famous type of blockchain. Um, so Bitcoin adds um, a bunch of transactions together and it uses a, a consensus mechanism called proof of work, which is basically to um, be able to prove that certain transactions are valid. And then whoever proves that sub- submits it to the network and the network adds it to the block, to the chain and then rolls on to the next one. Yeah. So this is where we've seen um, blockchain mining is what it's called. That. Yeah. So effectively, um, the way that new blocks are added to the network is that there are certain constraints under which they can be added, which have to be proven mathematically. So the whole basis of it is cryptography to ensure transaction finality and to be able to say that once we've added these transactions, they can't be changed in the future. So each last, each new block depends on the block before. Uh, it's something called a hash, which is a, a, a digital record of the previous block. And the new block has to include the, the hash of the previous block to be able to become the new block. So that means you can't go back in time and change anything, which gives it its immutable property, which is um, one of its fantastic um, core strengths, effectively. So that is really quite clever technology, isn't it? It's um, technically very complex. Um, I don't think today we're going to go into exactly how it works because it's like PhD level and beyond. Um, but the the idea that you can use this blockchain to prove the entire history of what's happened um, is really the special bit about the blockchain isn't it yeah i would i would agree with that i would also add that it's distributed so there's not one single point of failure there's not one single point of attack um in order to um hack the network so to speak you would have to hack every single node on the network at the same time in a very short space of time which is technically well for all intents and purposes impossible to do so it gives it allows people to Parties that don't trust each other can trust the protocol and can trust the network. So again, like we've seen with Bitcoin, people from all over the world have used it to send value from one side of the world to the other without any intermediaries uh, in a secure and and, and very um, orderly fashion, especially when you compare that to something like um, sending it through a bank, which is an intermediary. Um, There's often a lot of delays. There's often a lot of overhead that goes into that. With something like blockchain, it's um, there's no intermediary. It's a distributed system. There's no single owner. Um, so it, it enables a paradigm that we ha- we haven't seen globally before. Um, it's similar to what the internet is for data. Blockchain is for value, effectively. 
That's really interesting. The idea that because we don't need to rely on a third party, it's instantaneous, essentially. Sure. I mean, it it follows on one of the uh, really interesting parts of blockchain is that it enables a paradigm called triple entry accounting. So that for the last, say, 500 years, we've had double entry accounting, which is uh, a record of trade. I trade with you. We both keep uh, an order a record of our transactions. Every so often, we do a little bit of auditing to make sure that our transactions match up. And it, it enabled trade that wasn't possible before that method of, of accounting, and it has done for hundreds of years now. Triple entry accounting is a new paradigm in that, in as much as we still have our own record, but we also have an independent third-party record, which is also in sync. So it allows us to conduct business in a way that wasn't possible prior, in the same way that double-entry accounting allowed um, nations to do business as opposed to a single-entry accounting, which is basically just a list of what happened, which anybody can tamper with, things can go wrong with. Um, it's another layer of trust on top of a system which isn't really trusted anymore. You know, if you have two two parties keeping records, how do you really know that they're in sync? How do you really know that they're not colluding, all the rest of it? If you have an independent third party, then that gives you transparency that we do, we haven't seen before and is more suitable for our current sort of sociological state, I would argue. So the blockchain that we're talking about here basically is acting as that independent third party. So whereas Absolutely. if you had a financial transaction, you could have a third party, um, like the financial regulatory authority or something like that, that would have that and make sure the transaction was, was correct or the bank or whoever was involved. In this, we kind of have a virtual third party, which is the science and maths behind the blockchain that proves that the history that's stored in that blockchain exactly that so we have the um we have our own personal records and we have a cryptographically sealed uh immutable record which adds it as a which acts as a um, independent third party that anybody in in the world can use to ratify that that transaction is valid that's pretty cool so is it entirely aimed at finance then is is that the saying i know the origins as we discussed was essentially Bitcoin. Um, so it came from a very financial background. Is that where it's still used today? Um, or has the, the scope of this broadened? So that's a good question. Um, so the original Bitcoin paper was written, written by the elusive uh, Satoshi Nakamoto. Um, identity still unknown. There's a few people who have claimed to be that person, but have been discredited. It was introduced as a result of the 2008 financial crisis where there was a lot of faith that was lost in the current financial system and it became a white paper for a new way that the world could exchange value. Initially, it was Bitcoin specifically was aimed to be a currency. It's kind of grown beyond that now into more what you'd class as an asset than a currency. Um, but it's it's withstood, withstood attacks, it's withstood um, controversy, it's withstood a lot of negativity and criticism and it's still going 11 years or so later uh, and it's been adopted by nation states and it's it started a conversation 
on what other things we could use this technology for outside the realm of finance. But it really has come, as you rightly pointed, from a finance origin. Yeah, so when you say it started the conversation, we're not at the point yet that we see any large examples you could point out today that people would know about but wouldn't necessarily know that it worked off the similar sort of technology to what Bitcoin that's true, yeah. It's going through um, its growth phase at the moment. I would like to kind of make the analogy to where the internet was in the late 90s. Um, we had some of the infrastructure, but not a lot. We were still on dial-up. We were sending small web pages. We were doing, to go and use it, you had to go and sit at your computer. Um, we had the dot-com boom of 2000, which a lot of money flowed into the internet as, as a new way of doing things um didn't end well <laughs> ultimately a lot of money was spent but what it left behind was was infrastructure and a new way of doing things that weren't possible before so you fast forward 10 years later we have high-speed internet we have high-speed internet on a mobile device of all things uh, the internet is extremely pervasive now blockchain is going through a similar growth pattern it's Really, it's still at a, a very. It's it's still under the classification of nascent, very very comfortably. Um, the slight difference with the internet is that blockchain isn't new technologically speaking. It's using software and it's using networking principles and equipment and algorithms that we already have in you know in use in, in computing, putting them together in a new way and. Unlike the internet, we already have data centers. We already have high-speed internet. We already have mobile devices that are extremely powerful. So we have a lot of the infrastructure already that something like blockchain requires to be a success. So the time, the time scales involved in the maturity of this technology will be shorter than it was for the internet because of that very reason. Cool. That's really interesting. Um, so if we have all of that infrastructure, what don't we have? Because uh, as far as I'm aware, as someone that knows roughly about blockchain, sort of see it on a peripheral, hear, hear, hear people talking about it, um, that's as far as it goes for me. As far as I see and as far as I've heard, we still face an overwhelming majority of challenges with blockchain to get that reach and get it into practice. So what are some of those challenges and how close are we to actually overcoming them? So that's a good question. Um, I think there's still, really when we talk about blockchain on a global level at the moment, we're really talking about Bitcoin in the most. Um, there is also Ethereum, which was um, a blockchain um, unlike Bitcoin. If you think of Bitcoin as a calculator, uh, Ethereum's more of a computer, if that kind of makes okay. sense. Um, you can run... Pro, like smart contracts or programs on the Ethereum network in the same way that you would send money on the on a on a Bitcoin network. Um, there's a lot of challenges that go around the fact that people, by changing the paradigm and actually putting people in charge of their own value as opposed to seceding that responsibility to an institution such as a bank. You then have a lot of danger that comes with that. The reason that you go and put your money in the bank, and not keep it under your mattress, is if someone breaks into your house and takes your money, well, you've got nowhere to go with it. Blockchain is at a similar point at the moment. There's, there's a final mile issue of 
users actually being able to use the technology around things like um, to make transactions on blockchains, you have an ownership system known as a private key, which is a, a term used in cryptography. It basically means when you have the private key, you're the owner of that item on that blockchain. Much like if you have a key to a house, then you're probably the owner to that house or at least trusted. That's exactly right. But if somebody loses their private key, there's no recovery system. So if you lose your bank account, if you lose your bank card, sorry, you can go to the bank and you can say, hey, it's me, you know, check some details and reset your account. By having sole ownership over your private private key, for example... That means the the sovereignty, uh, the, the sovereignty element is good because you you're in control of it. But at the same time, you then are in responsibility for it. So if you kind of lose it, lose your key, you've lost your lost your access. So there's that also with Bitcoin specifically. There's a lot of scaling issues. Really, um, it has a huge amount of. Uh, we talked a little bit about proof of work, for example. Um, proof of work is effectively solving a mathematical problem and then presenting your answer back to the network. A very tricky mathematical problem. A very tricky mathematical yeah. problem, yeah. You couldn't do it on a piece of paper, that's for sure. You certainly couldn't, but it's one of these mathematical problems that's hard to solve, but easy to show your solution. So a good analogy for this is like a Sudoku. I always find it's, it's, it's quite an apt analogy. It'll take you a while to solve a Sudoku, but if you presented someone with your answer, it's quite quick for them to check that it's that it's valid. Yeah. So proof of work is very much like that. If you imagine every every cycle, so every round that you that you that you want to maybe call it, which is the round is the the end goal of the round is to add a new block to the blockchain. Um, to, if if you get the answer correct. First, you get the reward for adding that new block in the form of Bitcoin, for example. Um, every round, it gets harder to solve that problem. So if you imagine Sudoku, every round we would add an extra extra column on both sides and then it becomes that much more difficult to solve. So this uh, this problem, for example, with Bitcoin at the minute is, is hugely complicated to solve. So you have... Um, big, big uh, farms of computers dedicated to, to just solving this problem, but they consume a huge amount of electricity, and um, there's a lot of not so great impacts of that. In, in as much as um, that energy could probably be used better elsewhere, although a caveat is a lot of these centers are actually located where they have a lot of geo renewable energy. Um, but it's a it's a it's a limitation on the network in that respect. Yeah, so. They're trying to address this how because I believe there are efforts to coming up with different forms of blockchain. Is that correct? Yeah. Again, just to to talk a little bit about Bitcoin still because it's probably the most developed. Uh, they have something called the Lightning Network, which they uh, launched about two years ago now. And what it does is allows you to um, do a bunch of transactions offline and then submit them as one group to the Bitcoin network to authenticate. So it means you can do, you can have a higher transaction throughput. At the moment, you can do maybe five or six transactions a minute on blockchain, on Bitcoin, which across is across the whole world. Yeah. That's pretty slow. So isn't it's it? pretty slow. Yeah. Obviously, when you're used to instant payments with your cards, totally unacceptable, which is why 
people have tried to find technological solutions to that. Um, personally, I'm not convinced necessarily that Bitcoin will operate as a payment network. I definitely see it. It's it's moved towards more of an asset class. If you look at the the price of an individual Bitcoin and how you now have things like futures markets against Bitcoin and like I see you have like actual nation states that hold it and it's transformed into a method of payment very much into a sort of an asset class. Um, but it has opened the door for rise of similar paradigms um, known as cryptocurrencies effectively. Yeah, which I know at its peak a couple of years ago, um, there was a new one springing up almost every day, wasn't it? <laughs> That's right, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was um, called ICO Fever, they called it. So initial coin offerings. And it was effectively people creating tokens on the Ethereum network, actually using using smart contracts. And there was a big... Uh, it, it sparked a real strong debate in by the regulators, which again shows how uh, the technology is really influencing worldwide on a worldwide scale. And it it prompted a conversation between: is it a utility token or is it a securities token? A securities token being akin to like a share in a company or something that's going to pay you a dividend, because the the two are very different with regards to regulatory purposes. Um, What's been encouraging from the craziness, much like the internet and the boom caused a lot of infrastructure, the boom in the ICOs two years ago, which at its peak was, I think it was about $50 billion went into ICOs. Um, what it left behind was a conversation and a framework from the regulators two years later to say, you can, you can, you can issue these tokens and we'll regulate them. Because they fall under this specific profile of a of a utility token or a or a security, which is effectively an asset, and the regulation has given it legitimacy, um, which which then opens the door for the digitization of assets in a way that we haven't seen before, um, which for me is one of the biggest potentials that lie behind this technology is the. The, the ability to, to digitize and tokenize specific assets and then to, tr- to trade them on, on the open market. Because again, that opens up paradigms that we've never, we've never seen before, much, much akin to the way that without high speed internet, Netflix was still sending CDs out, right? Or DVDs out for people to watch. Um, having the infrastructure in place, having the ability to do so opens up a market for them that didn't exist. What, 15 years ago, maybe. So what do you mean by digitizing assets? So we're talking about, in my head, that means like galleries often try and digitize their assets in artwork and Mm -hmm. things like that. Is that what you're sort of referring to there? Yeah, I mean, a good example would be something like if you were a company that owned a fleet of cars, for example, or vans, you could effectively digitize the ownership of those vehicles and use them as collateral to raise finance for example so you could take them you could um you could have them in a a smart contract which is a a kind of an escrow style um digital um bit of software that would live for example on something like ethereum network or um something something similar and the business owner would make payments to the creditor 
if they missed their payments, the contract would just automatically transfer ownership of the vehicles directly to the creditor. So there's no there's no sort of ambiguity involved. There's no um, legal wrangling over ownership. It would just happen automatically. So it allows them to, if they wanted to do that at the moment, if they wanted to raise finance for, say, 100 vehicles, they've got to get all the paperwork for those 100 vehicles. They've got to have it. Um, they've got to go through, obviously, uh, the, the legal ramifications of doing that. Um, so it becomes prohibitive in order to make that happen. So, but, but being able to digitize an asset like that and, and issue shares of that asset is opens up doors that haven't been available before. Another good example of this actually is I worked on a prototype about two years ago. And it was for investing in houses. So the average person may not have, you know, 20 grand that they want to go and invest in a house. But if you had maybe a hundred people that had a thousand pound each, they could actually maybe go and buy a house outright. So the idea behind the prototype that I built was that you would be issued, um, shares of a house based on, or you'd be issued a token based on your investment. And then the company that was, running the scheme would go and buy the house and effectively take a take a cut for the management and the purchase of the house but then every month when the rent was paid when it goes into the uh, the bank account of the uh, the management company it's then split and divided by automatically by the, the shareholders that that have the shares in the house and then the shareholders are also free to trade those shares to sell them independently they're not tied to having having to, to go through the administrator, for example, uh, to actually tr- sort of trade them. So it allows that liquidity and it allows people to invest in a way that hasn't been possible before because it's prohibitive for them to do so. Yeah. Um, another, just one more example of this is something called trade credit, which is, um, say you're a manufacturer of cars, for example, and you get a big order in for a thousand cars you need to go and procure the materials for that, but you don't have the money to get the materials to make them. So trade credit is that you can effectively borrow money against an invoice. Now, at the minute, that's only really available to big corporates because it's getting very prohibitive on on cost of administration-wise. If you were to be able to digitize these assets, it, it allows smaller and smaller businesses to actually leverage these kind of services, um, which is good for everybody. Yeah. So it sounds like there's a huge amount of potential if we can get over some of the challenges that you've talked about, such as the scalability of this. Um, yeah. I mean, um, the five to six transactions a minute is, um, when I put it into context in my head, um, you think how many tweets are done on Twitter. I think I heard the stat this morning, but it's like thousands a minute. So we've got a long way to go if we want to scale up to, I suppose, global and large reaching uh, scenarios there. Um, but I think you mentioned earlier when we were talking before we started recording that there is um, sort of a private blockchain, as it were, so that businesses can actually start to look at this on a on a smaller scale that so they aren't sort of sharing those global resources is that correct or did i yeah very much so um i mean there's 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 quite a there's a debate within the the domain of of blockchain that we'll call it uh you have the sort of purists which are 
everything must be decentralized versus i guess the pragmatists who are who are we can decentralize mostly but there's going to have to be some centralization in order for things to actually practically work there are alternative they're not technically blockchains but the paradigm is the same they're a form of what's called distributed ledger which is uh, we talk about blockchain is effectively a ledger in the blockchain network everybody has a copy of that ledger and everybody can see what's on it in permission blockchains um or permissioned distributed ledger technology we'll call it and um, people may only have the parts of the ledger that are relevant to them they can still check everything that's that's on there they can verify that the transactions are right but it allows the um again we talked a little bit about proof of work earlier as as a as a method to ensure that only the right new new items are added to the ledger through a process called con- like consensus process that's not the only type of consensus um if you maybe have a group of a half a dozen companies that get to vote on whether or not they think a transaction's okay that can be done in a fraction of a second so you actually have pri- we'll call them um, permissioned blockchains effectively where you can get transaction throughputs in the thousands so on a commercial commercial level something like a visa which does 400,000 transactions a second you can start getting to those kind of scales because it's it, the limitation is often on the consensus how quickly can you can you all agree that that record should be added to the ledger and proof of work is one way but it's certainly not a good fit for most solutions yeah so we're going some way to solving that that scalability challenge by splitting up what we actually check and and how we check it um and and coming up with different ways this technology can be used yeah very much so uh in ethereum you have something called um proof of stake which uh they're trying to roll out they use proof of work at the moment it's just it's a different algorithm to bitcoin but it's the same concept proof of stake is slightly different proof of stake is effectively where you have validating entities within the network and they effectively stake their reputation in the form of actual money sometimes, most of the time actually with Ethereum, that they guarantee certain transactions are valid. If it proves that they're not valid, they lose that stake and their reputation's harmed to the point that they might actually be kicked off the network. So they then can't operate as um, a validator, which they would be paid for validating so that transactions are, are true. So it's it's a system that punishes bad actors really quickly and it becomes, uh, in game theory, it becomes uh, prohibitive for people to act in a nefarious fashion. Yeah, but in terms of the work that is required, it, it's magnitudes less, isn't it? So it's a lot less, yeah. It's, it's like I say, it's akin to um, to being able to uh, produce the, uh, show your answer to the Sudoku straight away and quickly verify, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, cool. Now that's, that sounds really interesting in terms of for the future of this. So I think the the summary is right now is there's still a lot changing yeah. um, in it. It's not globally applicable yet. It's not like there's probably sort of 1%, 0.1% of people that should even be looking um, to implement this right now. Probably a larger amount that should be aware of it and the future potential. So, I mean, we've talked a bit about the future potential, but where do you see this really going um, in future and how quickly are we going to get there? So I think the idea of maturity is uh, an interesting one. 
adoption seems to be quite limited at the moment with regards to large-scale projects that you can really point a finger at and say there's a really good example of it outside of obviously bitcoin that we've talked about in in general there's a lot of uh, momentum particularly within the financial services domain that they really see value in this because from a point of view of who will who will gain from it first it it is a good fit for, for transactions and, and finance on things like ethereum you have something called the ethereum enterprise alliance which includes people like microsoft includes ibm um JP Morgan, huge company, wrote took a took Ethereum, make their own version of it called Quorum, which is a, a, se- a semi it's a permission blockchain effectively, um, in order to do transactions on it. That's become very successful in in terms of um, companies looking to utilize that to to gain some efficiency process. Um, insurance for me is a really good fit for this technology. The reason being is you often have a lot of different parties that are interested in a certain insurance policy, especially when it comes to what's called reinsurance, which is when you have a high value asset, it's too much for one insurer to take on all at once. So they get another insurer to insure a part of it and then maybe another insurer to insure a part of it. And then if you think about that as a paradigm, you've got maybe three big insurers insuring one asset. So that's kind of one policy. Um, but then everyone needs to be kind of kept up to date as to how that's progressing. Um, insurance is quite old <laughs> as, a, um, as an industry and they have real challenges around doing that. The technology is very fragmented. Um, distributed ledger or blockchain is a really good fit for this. Um, there's a good project that has made it into the wild, into production called InsureWave. And it was uh, championed by Musk, the shipping giants, um, IBM, were involved um ey ernst and young from an accountancy perspective um they were a big driver behind it and there's a, a bunch of other marine insurers that become on board from it and it's effectively to try and address the issue of the cost of marine insurance which is incredibly expensive so you have these big boats going around the world with this cargo on board um going through maybe if somalia like pirate infested waters <laughs> you know these so they have to have these blanket policies which are extremely expensive and they can run into hundreds of millions of pounds worth of liability insurewave has allowed them to streamline the entire process so there's a single blockchain record effectively that all participants can look at so if Maersk is um, in charge of the the boat they can Post information back to the to the blockchain on on how the how the what's progressing, where it is, various metrics about it. The insurance companies can then look at that data, adjust their policy information, adjust their risk exposure, and it can offer um, substantial savings over just having a blanket policy. It, can, it allows this this idea of a granular level of cover, um, which is more much more fit for purpose and can save shippers around the world plus insurers like a lot of money and insurers have this paradigm where they have like capital requirements so if they write a one million pound policy they have to have a hundred million pound of capital on on reserve and they just have to have that money sat there now if we know that their exposure to risk is a lot lower if we can get a more real-time exposure to risk that'll that frees up tens of millions of pounds worth of capital that could go elsewhere it could be used you know to go into uh, it could be invested in different areas 
and it, it reduces the risk profile for the actual insurer themselves. So it's a good example of where the technology is coming out of the lab and into the, into the business, into the field. Um, but again, it's extremely nascent. You know, that only launched last year. It's still a very immature technology. Um, but much like the adoption of tel- telematics, for example, in insurance, allowing this increased bandwidth of data, the the ones that adopted first gain competitive advantage over ones that don't. So it's it's one of those things that you have to kind of be on board in order to much akin to you need a high speed internet connection in order to use the internet, you know, to its to its full degree. Yeah, that's fascinating as a as a potential um well a, an actual use that we've got now but one that's still very much developing and, and going in in the future yeah i mean the other the other one is around cryptocurrencies so about two weeks ago mark carney governor of the bank of england has basically come out and said we're probably going to look at a state-backed cryptocurrency they're now the fifth country around the world to do so including heavyweights like russia as well um the idea of Pure digital currency is appealing to central bankers in many ways because it offers traceability and accountability that they don't have at the moment. The actual rise of cryptocurrencies as a market um, has been quite fascinating in the use case of blockchain. Um, you have people that sort of trade them all day. You have people that speculate on them and make money. And they've, they've become an alternate financial system and this is against the backdrop of um potential huge unrest within our current financial system bitcoin was born out of the 2008 crisis when the next crisis hits which we're kind of on course for financially what alternatives do we have to the current financial system we don't have many off-the-shelf solutions to how things work at the moment blockchain offers a solution potentially that, that could be leveraged by um, to to create a new paradigm, effectively in, in digital currency. That it makes sense to explore at the very least. Yeah, we don't really have anything else on the shelf, so yeah. to speak. When you're th- when you think about the central bank bank issuance of currency, um, we don't really have anything else at the moment that we could we could turn to if we had to kind of scrap that system. What would we go to instead? Yeah, it's a very good question. And I think there's definitely exciting and interesting times ahead if you're looking at this technology and where it's going. It could become a fundamental core of the world economy when you put it like that. That's how I I see it, if if I'm honest. Personally, um, I feel that the internet, again, what the internet did for data, blockchain can do for value. The internet's not very good at sending value. It's great at sending data. It's not great at sending value. We kind of use credit cards to do it at the moment, but they're kind of a um, analog solution in a digital world almost to that extent. I mean, I know we've had the rise of like the likes of PayPal, um, but even like with, I mean, Facebook's another good example. So Facebook have been pushing something called Libra, which is their cryptocurrency, which they will underpin with a basket of, of currencies from uh from around the world, so like the dollar, the euro, the pound, the one, they would keep a keep a reserve of that, and they would peg their libra against that. So you're talking about a tech company creating a global currency. You know that's an that's an interesting paradigm. 
Because how does that work with sanctions, for example? How does that work for companies that are suffering things like hyperinflation, like we've seen in Venezuela recently? Where do people go? Where do people put their money? Where do people put their value? And because currencies around the world are uh, fiat currencies at the moment, they're not tied to anything. Um, When people lose confidence in their nation's currency, where else can they go? Yeah, so that's, I think that's a big idea um, to leave it on, to be honest, and, and <laughs> yeah. have people think about and ponder. Um, so that, that's been really great. That's been really fascinating. Thanks for your, thanks for your time today, Mark. Sure, I've really enjoyed it. Um, everyone should just go check out Bitcoin, <laughs> digital currencies, and digital assets. So yeah, so thanks very much for listening today. That's been all we've got to say today on blockchain um of course we'll have another episode coming out in a couple of weeks time uh in the meantime you can follow us on twitter at what is underscore podcast and also please do subscribe and like and rate us um on any podcast channels you do listen to us on other than that thanks very much for listening and i'll speak to you next time